This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, spiritual teacher and author Ajashanti discusses his belief that there are two spiritual instincts that reside deep within everyone. This talk was recorded on February 24, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So good evening and welcome, Acharya Ji. Thank you. Namaskar. And we are here to celebrate your new book, a wonderful book called Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom. And you heard about Shunya Ji. Um, she is an eminent Ayurveda specialist. Normally, we think of Ayurveda as a health science and a medical science, a therapeutic system. But it's very interesting that you treat Ayurveda as a holistic wisdom tradition. You call it lifestyle wisdom. So this is uh, something Western audiences are not that familiar with. Can you say a little bit more about how you configure Ayurveda as a wisdom tradition? It's a great question to begin with. Um, I think it is... Uh, something that even the people in India need to be reminded of. Because it's really easy in today's culture to have a reductionist view on great traditions. And so if we just focus our lens on a couple of herbs and some quick techniques and just get the body going and um, also juxtapose Ayurveda as an all natural means of health vis-a-vis -vis Western medicine, and its side effects, and it's just so easy to almost package and sell Ayurveda in the 21st century. And I felt that we were kind of like missing the bigger picture, not just for intellectual reasons or because I'm a scholar attached to some ideals, but I have personally witnessed and seen uh, its complete application and its ability to heal not only the body, but also the emotional being, the sensorial being where our senses get addicted or uh, stressed, the social being, and then the spiritual being, as in nothing hokey pokey here, but the spiritual being as in when we wake up, do we feel connected? Do we feel hopeful? Do we experience a life purpose? Or are we ready to check out? And, you know, um, and it's not just ordinary depression, which each one of us can have, like an up and down in a day, but it's a deep, deep alienation from our own existence. But when I was growing up, as you know, I grew up in a traditional family of master teachers, and we don't understand reducing and packaging things. We take time to go deep, because we know we are timeless beings, so we have all the time. So we go deep, and I saw that the, the full application was in sync with Ayurveda being connected to a greater yogic Vedic tradition, and it has a profound psychology <laughs> that I'll be teaching. Um, I teach profound physiology, profound spirituality. It's a perennial wisdom. True, true, Shunyaji. And I think that comes through so wonderfully in your book. Uh, I think uh, we are used to thinking about these things as separative sciences. Uh, medicine is something that deals with the body. You take medicines and you get healed with the body, etc. While what you're talking about is a different lifestyle, actually. And while reading it, I got the sense that you've grown up in that kind of lifestyle. You come from a very hoary tradition of Ayurvedic culture from North India, from uh, probably Ayodhya, if I'm not mistaken, and which is a great ancient city, city of Rama. And uh, you 
tell this story through beautiful anecdotes over here. That's what makes it such an engaging book. Um, one of the things that I kept reading here is about your grandfather, who was your teacher, and you used the term Baba for him. Baba is a, means father or grandfather sometimes in India, but it's also used in the entire spiritual tradition as master, as guru. So this relationship with your grandfather, with your teacher, it's something very different from the kind of relationship we expect with teachers in America, in schools, at, this, at CIIS, etc. Um, can you say a little bit more about that difference? I don't know about the difference, but I know that I've had this one teacher and the word guru means, gu means darkness and ru means light. So the one who sheds light so that we can um, discard that darkness, knowing that it was just a virtual monster all along. And light is our only truth. So when I um, was fortunate to be born into the family of a legendary healer and a spiritual master, and to have him as my grandfather, then to have him know somehow that I'm going to be leading this globally from childhood. He told me that this is what you have to do, this is who you are. And then take such time and attention, and I shared some of those dialogues. He was a man of few words. And he was this towering personality, and I was this eight, nine-year-old talking to him and, and, and having this grown-up conversation around life and um, the immutable being and that health is my birthright. And I would then go and tell my doll, you know, health is our birthright. <laughs> so... Uh, and, and I was a very naughty child there, but she's she. So I couldn't decide if I wanted to live up a guava tree or if I wanted to sit next to Baba. But mostly I wanted to sit next to Baba. And once I had eaten so many mangoes, I was full of mango stains. But then Baba started teaching and I ran to him. And that day Baba was talking about purity of being and shocham and cleanliness. And I'm like, oh dear, all those mango stains. But mango stains and all, you know, here I am. And when I was writing this book, interestingly, that nine-year-old leapt forward. So the voice, the protagonist of this book is that innocent nine-year-old who, who felt every word of her teacher reverberate. And I come from the tradition where we say it is Guru Parampara, which means that one master ignites the light in the student and that student becomes a master and then they ignite a light and it's a relationship of great affection right. and uh, there is no manipulation or even glamour here it's very simple it's not the 21st century uh, paraphernalia of guru it's just very simple and I, i'm I reminded as i read it i'm reminded of the upanishads which, which the word literally means to sit near upanishad and it's about the sharing of intimate knowledge yeah. and holistic knowledge. Holistic. The, the knowledge, a lot of it is wordless. And your teacher, your grandfather comes out as a very attractive being, attractive in a very deep sense. And we, we, you know, this is the California Institute of Integral Studies. I see the use of, I think, the idea of the integral in, in this entire work. It's a, it's a work of integral teaching, integral learning, an integral philosophy in, as Ayurveda. So it, it's very interesting. And here you have your own organization called Vedika Global. And uh, I was privy to go and visit there. And I sensed how you're trying to propagate a similar kind of model. Can you, can you say a little bit about that, the, the, the use of that, that same kind of, how does it translate into this culture? I'm going to go into a bit of humor yeah, please. here. So the best way to describe my educational effort is that I've created a Harry Potter school of Ayurveda, yoga, and Vedanta. Okay, so now we're clear. And I was growing up with the transformational alchemical nature of consciousness and body and psychology and how it leaps forward beyond years of decay or patterns when the right knowledge is ignited within. So I had to create a, a school that 
I grew up in, which is very hands-on and immersion. And there was a lot of belief in the teacher that whatever you're experiencing is only ephemeral or transitory. And so there is such positivity. And that's the nature of a traditional school called a guru kulam, a teacher's family. And so that's the kind of school I created 10 years ago. And I'm so happy and proud with some of the work I'm doing with now the government of India and worldwide. I have been able to somewhat revive the Gurukulam model and take it outside a religious context to try and explain that this is actually a universal methodology of immersion and steeping into a tradition and then taking the time to study it. Even though we have shorter courses to introduce people. But once a student gets ready, they have a deeper path. And because I'm a graduate of one such school, one of the last of such schools, I naturally then created what I knew to be true for me and what had converted uh, a being like me into um, my tallest and best version. So I guess that's what I'm trying to do. And so, yeah, the book has a lot of that teacher-student dialogue and this, you, you know, the gentle grooming of the teacher saying, hey, where are you going? Come this way. Really gentle. No, I think w one thing which I really felt from this is what can make it work? Because one of the things that uh, the Western culture finds difficult about the Guru Shishya Parampara is the patriarchy in it. <laughs> the, the sort of uh, sitting on a pedestal and the difference between the Guru and the Shishya. But the sense I got from this is that there is a condition for it to work, and that is trust, honesty, and love. Uh, there has to be perfect honesty in the, in the exchange and a tremendous amount of trust and love. And it cannot be manufactured. It has to come from something intrinsic in the teacher that draws the student and makes that connection. Would you say that that's the case? Or? And I would agree. And then when you look at uh, some of the teachings on who is a guru, guru charitra, etc., right. guru gita, a true teacher is simple. A true teacher is humble. A true teacher is not, uh, you know, using power right. uh, to posture. And so uh, I have students who've known me for decades now, and I'm as accessible as them. And um, I never said, call me your guru. Right. You know, guru is an experience of somebody helping you. And we can have that guru, and we can have more than one guru, where a being comes in and changes the direction of our life and takes us from a closed uh, experience to a more open experience and ultimately awakens the inner guru, you know, and, and then sets you free. And, and, and so I guess I'm just so fortunate that I receive that uh, non-patriarchal, um, amazing experience. In fact, you see, as you know, that the Vedas, the most ancient body of sacred wisdom from India, which is about 10,000 years old, and you will know the exact date. Um, nobody, you know, it, nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. <laughs> but we're now going to 10,000 yeah. because new linguistic and other evidences. They were uh, composed by both male sages called rishis yes. and female sages called rishikas. And spiritual teachers like myself, they had a vocation back then and they were called Brahmavadini. And then for a while there, you know, due to historical situational reasons, there were no more uh, women spiritual teachers or yoginis. It, but, you know, my, my grandfather, he opened a school in 1935 to the girl child and said, let everybody come in who's a true seeker. So there was no room for power or posturing or needing to be more than. But then the student themselves felt a reverence and a special bond towards that teacher. So in this book, what I did was I shared that playful, affectionate morphing of my experience. May I share one? Please, please. I, around 18 or 19, I developed a lot of pain and uh, in my uh, sacroiliac joints and lower back, and I couldn't walk, and the pain was radiating everywhere. And my body got so inflamed, I could barely breathe. My ribs were also hurting. 
And during that time, when you're a teenager or young youth, if you're normal, you're going to walk away from whatever your family does, right? Anybody understand that? So I didn't have this loud rebellion, but I had this quiet questioning of, you know, what's, what's real for me? And so and around that time, I also had a lot of pain. And not once did my teacher or elders in my family rub it to my face. They just cheerfully went around role modeling their own radiant lives. And then one day I was crying in my pillow and my grandfather stroked my hair and just looked at me and I said, I can't walk. And Baba said, I see, why not fly? And so what he was saying was, don't put all your energy in overcoming. Why not put energy in becoming what you want to become? And I've really been flying since then. I walk, I run. And then once again, karma threw a loop at me and I had an accident and I had, you know, a neck injury. And it looked like surgery or, you know, um, other things would be needed. But uh, again, you know, using Ayurveda, using this wisdom, I continue to heal myself. And apparently that pain condition, much later I found out, is an immunological condition that likes to put people in wheelchairs or on multiple surgeries, but I'm planning to stay out of one. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, you know, just to dwell a little more on your grandfather, because he was, he's such an interesting and attractive character over here. Uh, you know, it's a possibility that that could be natural to him. But in our times, in our age, uh, I'm wondering if he was influenced by the enlightened thoughts of the nationalist period. Is there some, something that he revealed about this? Or? Yeah, so he, you know, we are, our basic lineage is on Advaita Vedanta yes, or yes. Upanishads, which postulates a non-dual um, common substratum of the animate and the inanimate, the visible and the invisible reality, which is like pure consciousness. And so it advocates uh, an experience of there is only oneness and all appearances are qualified reality. And when that qualified reality ends, there is only the truth of oneness. That was our main teaching along with yoga and Ayurveda. But naturally, because we were such fierce believers in equality and oneness, uh, when we were um, enslaved, when we were colonized, it became really important for not only my grandfather, but even my great-grandfather, who was a very famous Hindu saint in Ayodhya, for us to then, uh, you know, uh, uh, try to awaken our people, our community around us, to awaken to their national pride. And we were forgetting our own Vedic spiritual roots. So my great-grandfather created what's called as a Gram Mandala, a village circle. And he sent out students as ambassadors of knowledge. And Indians were starving. It was like a, a British-made... Um, uh, Created uh, British famine. created famine, right? Because the 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 Indians were no longer growing their natural food, yes, yes. but they were forced to grow a cash crop called tobacco for Britishers, and then they had and they were you know they were selling it on really cheap prices. So there was starvation. There was no medicine. So my uh, great grandfather's students and disciples would go from village to village and tell them, "Here, look at this village pond and centella asiatica called mandukparni is growing." here. First of all, start adding it to your water because it's a great antidepressant. So the villagers won't commit suicide anymore or, you know, lose their heart. And here, go to this lotus growing in the pond here and the leaves and the, and the lotus buds, they are actually anti-inflammatory. They purify your blood. It's medicine. So they started making people aware, first of all, and also started chanting to them messages of strength from the Bhagavad Gita. And then uh, they both started wearing khadi. What is the English name for khadi? Um, the hand-woven, hand-spun, hand yeah. hand what Gandhi cotton. was doing, what Gandhi right. was doing right, was right. spinning his own cloth yes. because Gandhi said to the Britishers, we don't want your polyester clothing, we don't want you to force 
you know, you're to force India to import it. We're going to weave our own cloth. We're going to make our own salts. That was part of the Satyagraha movement. So we were already, we are Shwetadharis. We were already wearing lighter colored clothes, but then they started weaving the loom. And so in a way they were not only um, spiritual beings, but they were also conscious activists. And they were very much rooted in their times. And that got into my blood. Yeah. So I'm not satisfied sitting in my gurukulam being a spiritual teacher. Yeah. I'm an activist. <laughs> no, it's so, it's so exemplary because today so many Indians are coming to this country or to the West, but most of them are actually following the professional life of the West. Well, you are trying to open up the doors to a very ancient tradition. Uh, tell me something, Shunyaji. Now, from whatever we discussed, I'm aware of a very powerful oral tradition that is at work over here, this Guru Shishya Parampara. But there were also texts, right? There were important texts that actually connect this knowledge to something very old that has been written down. Can you talk a little bit about those texts and how they were imparted to you? These texts are, um, we're very fortunate that there was the text for these three main, well, the Vedas, first of all, which is, you know, the Rik, Sam, Yajur, and uh, Atharva Veda. And these texts were oral for thousands of years. We don't even know when, but around possibly 1 BCE, around that time, uh, they started getting, you know, um, written on palm leaves or copper plates. And then gradually, you know, now they're available on Amazon.com. So we're very fortunate. And they were these families that were called Sampradayas that were holding on to the oral memory uh, of these various branches of the Vedas. So, for example, my family is committed to the Rig Veda. So we, it's not possible, not easily possible to memorize all the Vedas. So therefore, we hold on to pieces of it. And, and so we come together in conferences to make sure that what we know through thousands of years of passing on is what is matching the book. So that's why we're pretty accurate with the written and the oral tradition. And so those sounds and those mantras is very important for us to hold on to them. So that's the Vedas. And then we have the Upanishads, which is the later part of the Veda, which talks about this immutable, boundless, inexhaustible self that lives within each one of us. And we share it not only with other human beings, but all animals, plants, and possibly beings in other lokas or dimensions. So those Upanishads are some things that we teach in my school also. Yoga, of course, we have not only the Yoga Sutras, and but I wanted to share with you that I hope we get to talk about it at some point, but in the Ayurvedic text from first century BCE, Charak, yes. who is often considered a contemporary of Patanjali, yes. there is a 36 verse hidden teaching of yoga psychology. Really? And it is, uh, it predates uh, the Buddhist teaching of mindful meditation. So I am, it's not been brought out in the world, but I am... part of the Yoga Sanghita or...? Ayurveda Samhita. Ayurveda Samhita. Charaka Samhita? Charaka, Charaka Samhita. Samhita. So then Ayurveda has its own text called Charak Samhita from 1 BCE, Sushruta Samhita, which is a surgery compendium, Bhava Prakasha, which is, which, which, which is a text written just after the Portuguese had arrived in India. So the first time in Ayurveda, the mention of um, sexually transmitted diseases came up. So about the 17th century? 16th, or so, 16th exactly, 17th. 16th century. We also have the 8th century Ashtang Hidam, which is highly influenced by Buddhism. So um, uh, there's all this beauty of, you know, the ancient Vedic sages. Then you have a huge influence of Buddhism because Buddha himself was a great promoter of Ayurveda and a believer. And then we had Nagarjuna, one of his famous monks, who's actually also an Ayurveda author. Yeah. So we had, and Buddha, uh, Buddhist missionaries spread Ayurveda all over Japan, Indonesia, Tibet, you know, and Ashoka, the King Ashoka, who promoted Ayurveda, he sent missionaries to Greece 
and you know the Greek medicine began influenced by Ayurveda. So all this happened. So these texts are still available. And so one of the things that I do is I teach from them. Uh, one, I, my preference is to teach from classical texts because um, somebody has to hold on to that tradition. Otherwise, it keeps getting diluted and, um, if I may use the word, dumbed down at times also. You know, the do-it-yourself do it version of Ayurveda is welcome, but it should not be the only window to Ayurveda. So I feel that I'm not just a beneficiary, but I'm a trustee of a great tradition, and I want my students to feel that way. So this book also, if you saw, even though it's written for an average person who doesn't even know Ayurveda, at the back, there is this great references to all these texts. And as a traditional teacher, you know, modern teachers like to say, I invented the system of medicine, or I dreamt this diet, you know, and I gave it to you. Or I went into meditation and came out with this. People like me say, oh, I have nothing original. We're so proud. There's nothing original. We got out of the way. We just put it out there for you in simple language, <laughs> you know, because we want to connect you to those texts which carry the truth of health and mental health. So, Shunya ji, I, I had gone to your uh, one of your uh, teaching mm -hmm. classes and I saw how deeply you value the Sanskrit texts. And as both you and I know, the value, the power of the Sanskrit language itself from these texts, there's on the one hand the sound value itself because it carries experience beyond what you can just communicate through, you know, normal language. And also the construction, when you actually try to meditate or contemplate the slokas, uh, a lot more comes through. It's, it's not easy to actually understand, but contemplating it, you get a lot more from it. You, you enter into states of understanding that are quite rare. Okay. Do, would you like to say something? I, I saw that you teach for some time and then you give some time for people to do manana. Actually, that was happening at the time when I had come. And there was going to be a period of no teaching so that, so that they would be able to contemplate uh, these texts. Can you say something about that yeah, method so of the, teaching? The ancient tradition is a, is a herd tradition. It's called Shruti tradition. So that which means that you should, you should be fortunate enough or you should be industrious enough to seek out a worthy teacher and then hear it from a soul uttering it. So it becomes potentiated. So the entire Vedic tradition of yoga, Ayurveda, Vedanta is not a, a red tradition because then you and yourself and your loneliness and your misinterpretations and your stories that are gonna color it. So you wanna hear it from somebody who's obviously worthy and qualified to teach and, and one of the biggest qualification is they have a teacher. <laughs> And then their teacher has a teacher. So it's like that's our qualification. And then you hear it, and that's called shravanam. And then mananam is where you contemplate it. And that should be a pretty long period before you even ask questions. Because the belief is that as you churn it, you're going to start getting insights because the, the, the word is called you are recognizing the knowledge. It's not new. You know it somewhere. It's wisdom, it's life's wisdom. It's not just logistics, bunch of new information to memorize. So when, you, when it enters you and you do mananam, you, you say, oh, I knew it all along. Oh, okay, that makes sense, right? So that's why we do mananam. Right. So I, I, I ask my students to be industrious in being more contemplative. And then the last part is nididhyasnam, which means don't just learn wonderful things about Ayurveda and yoga. Apply it in your relationship with your mother-in-law or, you know, with your neighbor or with your boss or with your employee. And, you know, change your life, change your consciousness. So I love that. Yeah. Shunyaji, also, I found that uh, that was a very important aspect of this book, where it's not just teaching about herbs or teaching about medicine or even about lifestyle, but it goes into the depths of yoga at, at certain points. And I'm presuming that those parts where you're talking about that are perhaps coming out of those secret passages in the Charaka Sam Samhita? All of that. And even this book is written in a way where if an average person came into this book, 
it's like they are being taken into a deep vortex. Because I, you know, there's some certain knowledge that I've given in the beginning that kind of reconditions our stuck consciousness. Right. So we kind of open it or we till the soil, so to say. So if you do read this book, I hope you read it from page one, because it's taking you progressively into being more open and, and possibly planting seeds of a whole new paradigm that didn't exist. Because the paradigm that I want to talk about is not disease management. I don't want to talk about even disease prevention because it's just beginning to sound really tedious to me. Prevent disease. I want to talk about awakening health. And according to Baba, my teacher, and the Vedas, health is not a fixed commodity that you're losing with every nick and bump and sneeze and allergy and fever and even an episode of cancer. Okay, that's it. It's true that we age, it's true that there is some decay, but disease and suffering is really just our ignorance. And therefore, what we want to do is awaken that infinite uh, potential within us. And for that, I did need to write this kind of book because it's easy to put a checklist and tell you do's and don'ts. And I'll share a secret with you. I'm not the kind of person who will be told don't do it because then I want to do it. I, I think you're like that too. <laughs> so I don't know. The moment you say don't, I have to do this. That's just me. So I don't believe in don'ts and do's. I believe in connecting with you and then letting this be your adventure. That's why I've shared. So actually, what's remarkable is that in a very approachable language, you actually delve into some very <laughs> profound things. Yeah. And you use the word connecting. I think connecting is a really nice uh, term to kind of encapsulate the teaching of the book. So one thing is that uh, you also just mentioned it, this thing about, you know, not do do's and don'ts, don'ts, but connecting. And you talk about the Sankhya basis of that. You're saying that nature, uh, which is in, in Sankhya, which is a dualistic system, you have Purusha and Prakriti, consciousness and nature. And nature is something that is all around us. But disease is not caused by nature. Disease is caused by the deformation of nature <laughs> from Vikriti. And what you're saying is that if we can reestablish the harmony with nature, then those diseases start falling off. Uh, would you like to say something? Yes, yes nature yes. is mother. Yeah, you're saying there about... There is no punishment. In, so in, in that <laughs> sense that we have to become conscious of environment, of season, of time of day, and each one of these uh, sort of almost like, uh, you know, trappings around us is giving us lessons of what we should do to become conscious with it. Isn't that part of this holistic lifestyle that you're talking about here? Yeah, when we become aligned with consciousness, Purusha, and Mother Nature, Prakriti, and understand what she wants from us. And she's giving us big hints, okay? Like she's like making the sunshine to tell us to shine and be awake. And then she's actually setting the sun. So we get hint, hint to go to bed. But we don't. Birds go to bed, plants go to bed, trees go to bed. We don't. You know, we, we celebrate the fact that we have choices. But... The thing is that um, the best part is that Baba said that you can forget and you can have a lot of drama and then you can find Ayurveda to tell you how to be conscious with the environment and nature because, you know, it's one thing to be motivated, but then you don't know what steps to take. And so then what Ayurveda did, the sages did in their great compassion was they broke down our steps into a 24-hour day. What steps can you take? And a, 12, and a 12 month cycle of the earth orbiting on its own axis or the earth orbiting around the sun. This creates biochronological rhythms and it gives us opportunities to play with nature. And most of the living sentient animals, they know when to eat, when to mate, when to have a baby, when to drop their, you know, they're just following a nature's or rhythm. Or how much? Yeah. Right. So Baba said, fishes don't need to go to hospitals to remember they are a fish. But, you know, Shunya, we sometimes forget. And that, that nature's intelligence, it's a word called Rita in right, Veda. Right, Rita. And Rita, R-T-A, Rita. 
is actually the root word of the word rhythm. As you know, Sanskrit is the mother language for the Latin Greek set of languages too. So rita, from rhythm. So there's a rita. So the best part was that I found, not only through observing Baba, then through my two and a half decades of solid experience with people with all kinds of conditions that I didn't even have to give them Ayurvedic medicine. I just had to teach them how to be in rita. And then what happened was, ulcerative colitis was no longer bleeding, MS was not inflamed, weight was being lost, cholesterol was dropping, depressions were lifting, and it just didn't end with that. And then the person's consciousness kept expanding and becoming more and more universal. And I Quite said, amazing. oh my God. And that's why I, for the last 10 years, I'm doing a drug-free clinical Wonderful. work, several charitable clinics in California, and drug-free. Because one of my, my, I have a peeve with the current way Ayurvedic medicine is being practiced is that it's just being reduced to write a natural supplement. Here, get your trifla, eat your turmeric, okay? First, it's leading to worldwide patent wars. Number two, it's leading to crazy depletion of mother nature, where people are just, you know, even going to their you know, native Himalayan, uh, you know, no-touch areas and getting herbs and exporting them. So, uh, you know, 93% of Ayurvedic herbs in India are endangered. Get that. So I did this like drug-free, just get into lifestyle. And if you're going to have any herbs, can you grow them in your own terrace or your backyard? And uh, less glamorous herbs, but very potent, like marigolds, roses, a turmeric plant in your own home or, you know, a, a, a room which gets good sunlight. And so we have to be responsible. We can't just be depleting Mother Earth in the name of Ayurveda. And, you know, and the quest of our whole natural medicine is what? A capsule with trifla? I don't think so. <laughs> no, you know. you're quite right. And this book contains so many examples of that. You actually give life examples of people that you encountered and who were looking for medicine, but you didn't give them any medicine. You just changed a little bit their lifestyle and everything became okay. I think I'd like to stay and share great. a story. Yeah, please, yeah. There's Brittany Barrett, 22 uh -huh. Yeah, you, you talk about her here. Yeah. Quite. Just, you know, she came in just like a talk like this, and she's sitting in the front row, and she kept crying. And I thought, I know I have a thick accent, but it's not that bad that you should be crying. But then she came up to me and said she's on 18 prescription pills because of ulcerative colitis, and she has to move in with her parents and she has to stay near a restroom because, and when she goes, it's red and she has been told nothing can be done about it and food doesn't make a difference, okay? So she followed me to a retreat. She didn't sign up for my courses as yet. And, and she was like, she was used to telling everybody her sob story. This is her words, whoever she could find. So she was telling me and some of the teachers in my school about it. So we took a little napkin and wrote five things on it. Like, you know, it's almost like, here, we'll talk to you later, do these five things, it's laughable. And those five things healed her. And she's off of all medication, and she's, uh, like, becoming a leader in food and nutrition and wellness Absolutely. in her community. Now, apart from these things, that the lifestyle changes, you also go into some very profound spiritual ex exercises. For example, something that Sankhya teaches, uh, the, the yoga of separating Purusha and Prakriti, how the consciousness can be made free from the various conditionings of the system. Uh, would you like to say something about that? But you, you put it in a very approachable way, whereas you find that uh, yoga teachers will tell it to you with a lot of mystique. Can you, uh, and what is the utility of separating consciousness from nature? in Ayurveda, in, in, from, in terms of uh, health and healing? Yeah, so uh, consciousness, we are made up of consciousness and nature. Consciousness is said to be our authentic self and our forever healthy self. And nature is what contributes to our body and mind. By default, it's healthy, but then it expects, it, it demands uh, a few rules from us. Like it wants us to not violate like if say you have a benign dad, which is consciousness, always ready to pet you no matter what you do. And then you have a strict mom who says, go to bed at 8 p.m. Okay, that's nature. 
So what happens is, though we have a forever healthy self, which is our true being, our body and mind is a place of change because prakriti or nature changes. That's a law. So let's not fight it or try to figure it out in a laboratory. It's real. We can see that. Body and mind are forever changing, and it's under the purview of space and time and certain physical laws. And they can, if we are leading a life of imbalance or unconsciousness and no possible intelligence or ritha to our life, become abodes of dis-ease and distress, okay? So in a default way, we walk around fused in the sense we don't know about our true self. And so in this book, throughout the book, whether I'm talking about toothbrush or I'm talking about a beauty pack, throughout I wanted us to be aware that we have a healthy self within. Forever healthy, forever willing to give us another gift, forever willing to give us our ability to reinvent ourselves. Beautiful. Okay, but because when we are fused, we don't know that. So we think that all of us is suffering. But when we become aware of this, then what happens is through mere observation and mere suggestion or looking, whatever we do seems to work. You know, so I've been, you know, I just flew in two hours uh, ago from Sedona where I was teaching. And, uh, and I have had a very full schedule, teaching, going from one city to another. So um, I had some pain on my right side. And I have stiffness, but I don't have pain. So I just, uh, my husband was driving the car and I just said, I like to be quiet because I want to heal my own pain. And all I did was my observer had to separate from the pain and look at it. I don't have pain. Good. So even while I'll go back to my lifestyle and apply some warm oil, drink a certain tea, I'll do all that. But it really helps to separate the two, and then we can work with both. In the Gita, the first thing that Krishna <laughs> says to Arjuna is you have an unborn self within yourself. That, that unborn becomes self, the, yeah, yes. That becomes the handle to self-invention, as you said. Um, and you talked just now about your husband, who is here today with us. Uh, I'd like to mention and make that a segue to ask you about diet. Because, uh, you know, Ayurvedic diet, there's a lot of different herbs and things like that people talk about. But you make everyday diet into a very important part of this kind of holistic lifestyle. And I've also been privy to wonderful meals in your, uh, at your place. Uh, your husband is a great chef, uh, tasty, healthy, and uplifting. There is a very high consciousness quality to the food. Can you tell us something about uh, diet and whether cooking plays a part in your teaching? Yeah, and I'd like to share two things first. Like, look at my incredible karma to be born in Baba's home and then to be married to an Ayurvedic chef. So, one, I'm very fortunate. And number two, I work very hard to teach my students, but the most popular teacher is my husband because they all get bribed by his food. So Ayurvedic food is delicious, and Ayurvedic food is universal in the sense that Ayurvedic food is not asking us to eat the way certain people ate on you know, the south of Indus. Or uh, you don't have to even become a vegetarian necessarily. Um, it, Ayurveda is a spiritual science, not a religious science. And Ayurveda developed cuisines that were amazing, such macro thinking that if you live in a dry, hot climate, you might want more oily foods. So when I went to Sedona or Phoenix, which is a desert, I was eating butter like there's no tomorrow. Okay, But when I come to a wet, uh, cold climate where, you know, it's already wet and watery and it's raining, I might, you know, have less butter and more drying foods, more spicy foods. So there's a lot of like thought behind it. It's not just some box that we're all supposed to eat the rest of our lives. And there was also some incorrect information floating around that you figure out what's your energy. 
which is a fiery energy called pitta or an airy energy called vata. And then for the rest of your life, you eat that diet. And I'm like, who made up that rule? That is so boring. No rishi or sage can make up that rule because the sages lived as per a greater wisdom. So they say that only if your energy is imbalanced, for a while you can eat those foods. Otherwise, you should follow the great seasonal rhythm and season herself will guide us. But it's not just follow everything seasonal, that's one thing, but then the rishis or the sages and the rishikas did another favor. They studied every season and they said, here are 15 things every season that you can possibly include into your palate. Whether you cook European or Indian or Sri Lankan or Japanese, just include it into your palate and you or your health will keep getting better. So this is what my students and clients do after we have balanced their energies, which might take a month or 15 days or three months. Once it's better, they are just on their own. They're on autopilot. I don't have to see them. I don't have to talk to them. I rarely talk to them. This wisdom works for them. I just teach a big class and then they run with it and they just keep coming back saying, wow, thank you so much. But it's really mother nature giving us all this intelligence. So diet is really important. So the concept of Ayurvedic superfoods, and then there are some foods that we must eat round the year. And those superfoods then are, I have 27 recipes from Chef Sanjay. Uh, and, and, and these are recipes that were cooked in my home. They are cooked in my school. They, uh, they are being cooked actually worldwide because I teach worldwide now. And, you know, people are benefiting and swearing by them. These recipes were also cooked by Baba. So I just feel grateful to add this part. Beautiful. Oh, one other thing that I found very intriguing about this is uh, your use of karma yoga. Mm. Now, you know, the term karma yoga is uh, sometimes people think it's, it's sort of like you always have a guilt. And so <laughs> you have to do something to expiate your guilt. But your use of karma yoga as an Ayurvedic tool... Uh, and it's a wonderful story where your, 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 your grandfather tells somebody, okay, I know now your problem is not going to be cured by anything else, but by karma yoga. So tell us a little bit about that. People used to come from far and wide to meet Baba, either to get his blessing, just to look at him, or hopefully get a lifestyle recommendation. So this man came looking, he looked rather well off because in India, if you're well off, you wear gold. Man or woman, you're like chains and all of that, right? And wearing brilliant clothing. And he came in an ambassador car, which is an old model of car from Jaipur, 400 miles away. But he looked in discomfort. And later he whispered to Baba or one of his students that he was having hemorrhoids. Painful, you know, he had a sore bottom. And he hoped for help because in spite of whatever he had done, he was not helped. So Baba looked at him and said, mm -hmm. uh, he knew that this man is prosperous and owns jewelry store shops or something and said, I know you have a farm. I want you to move to the farm. I want you to, you know, get your hands dirty. And I want you to grow this herb called Aparajita, which is a six-week cycle from growth to harvest and keep harvesting it and collecting it and after one year bring it back to me. The man's like taking notes and saying, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And then he and then Baba's turning his attention and when he said, Oh Baba, like, you know, what's my dosage? He goes, Oh, you don't get to take even a bite of this. You have to just grow this and give it away. And then Baba was such a man, you don't ask him second questions. You know, it's like, so the man went away and we thought, who knows, he'll come back. But one year later, he came very, he had lost weight. He looked happy and his wife and his daughters were dressed in brilliant clothes and they came with garlands and sweets. So as a child, I remember that part, the sweets and the garland. <laughs> and later I understood, as I was studying the scriptures with him, I understood what is this karma yoga? And in karma yoga, you don't just live for yourself. We all live for ourselves. Every animal lives for itself. But when we begin, we don't just take, we also give back. So the man was suffering from a disease of oversaturation, overweight, overeating, overhoarding, overthinking about me and mine and how to have more. 
So by actually growing these herbs and giving them for others who could not afford it, he was actually telling the universe that he's being one with a concurrent of healing and giving and not just taking, 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 taking. So even that one extra teaspoon of herb from Mother Planet Earth was just take him taking more. And this was now time to give. And as he gave to Mother Earth and to other poor people, it healed him. So, you know, this was spirituality alive in the laboratory. Beautiful, yeah. And these examples then became a way of my life, um, you know. Well, we're obviously old souls um, who go back, so I could go on talking to you about <laughs> this. But I just want to say that I'm very fortunate that it's only been a month since the release of the book, but it's doing so well. It's been on and off as a bestseller, you know, on various platforms. And um, it's just um, bringing forward a, a new type of Ayurveda. I think worldwide, the lovers of holistic medicine and Ayurveda are ready to just go a little deeper. And... I did keep it accessible because I work with people in the 21st century. And one of the Acharya Dharma, or one of the teachers of a spiritual or, or a classical teacher is to make sure they are serving their population. So if I was teaching in Kenya, I would try to find the language and sensibility of Kenyans to convey a timeless wisdom. So I, 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 I do that. I always connect with here and now. Uh, so I live in both worlds. And so this book, I think, is a very sincere, uh, you know, effort to do that. And also, I didn't write it right after I graduated because I was so full of information. I had to regurgitate it in a book. I've written it after almost three decades of working with people in America, in India, and in other countries, and seeing repeatedly that what Baba told me, that health is your birthright, is a fact, and that we're all scaring ourselves a lot. And also, what could potentially be a really easy system to ease into is becoming too complex. If you have to do a PhD on Ayurveda to benefit from it, something's not right. It has to be simple. Health is our birthright, it's our nature. And if it can be eased into it and led into it and joyfully reacquainted to our healthy self, then I think each one of us can become a walking miracle. Thank you, Shunyajit. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrier at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.